Well, it's good to be with you ladies. Thanks so much for letting me come. Let's take our Bibles and get them out. And um, you also need to have your worksheet. That was the handout today. We're going to be all over the map. Uh, for those of you who have been in uh, Wellspring before, and um, you've, you've heard this many times, and, but uh, I make no apology for preaching it again. Because there is no greater subject we can think about together than the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ and the transformed life by His Spirit, uh, and then narrowed down into a gospel activity, uh, the gospel mission of Jesus Christ to draw in sinners, build them up, and send them out for His namesake. So uh, let's put our seatbelt on, and uh, let's get our Bibles opened. Um, You can turn to page one, because we're going to read all of them. Kidding. We'll be in Exodus. But let me start with prayer, because we always need the Lord whenever we open the Bible, don't we? So let's pray together. Father, what a great privilege it is to have your written words right in front of us. Uh, Lord, we need you as we consider these words that are from you to us. These words primarily, um, foundationally reveal you to us, and we want to see more of you in this word, even this morning as we study your Bible, um, and remind ourselves of familiar things to us that we love at this church about your Bible. We pray, God, that you would soften our hearts, that you would make them receptive to truth, and that where um, we find your word chafing up against us, Lord, that we would be the ones to humble ourselves and tremble under your word, that we might yield ourselves more to your spirit and his work in our lives to conform us more to the um, amazing image of Jesus Christ. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Um, Before we start, I want to just remind you and give you a brief overview of the three primary disciplines um, for Wellspring. Um, The men in the church think about the same three disciplines foundationally. Um, You know, it's heart, it's home, and it's ministry. Uh, There is a sequence to that that makes sense, but it is not a rigid sequence because uh, your heart and shepherding your heart it's not something you ever graduate from and then go on to your home like first grade. You you know you don't want to keep doing first grade over and over. Um, although some of us did and it, we turned out okay. Um, you you these are, there's a sequence to it. There's a priority to it. Um, but you shepherd your heart. That's the greatest primor- priority because in that is the fountain. Not your heart, but the word of God in your heart. The gospel in your heart, as you draw near to the Bible, you're drawing near to the God of the Bible who reveals himself here, and you're seeking to pause and to reflect on him and to worship him and to fear him and to enjoy him, to serve him. And when you do that, and then the little one cries in your home, or the little one comes home from work and he's crying, (laughs) Um, you're ready, you at least fueled up in some sense, and you positioned your heart to be more successful than at any other point during the day. Your quiet time is not a magical formula. You've already found that to be true. Because you read the Bible, you thought it was the most amazing moment of any day anybody ever lived. You poured a cup of coffee, your little one came out, and you sinned boldly against them. You know that. But... We keep doing this over and over and over and over. And you don't just wake up, find yourself at 10 o'clock in the morning and realize, my goodness, how did that happen? I've been reading my Bible for two hours and praying. It is a discipline. You must discipline yourself. Your husband can't do it for you. He wants to, trust me. But he can't do it for you and you can't do it for him. You must become disciplined in this by God's grace. Uh, to draw near to the Bible, to get to know the God of the Bible better and better and better. Okay? Your kids desperately need mommy to be a, a mom who's drunk her fill of the Lord in the Word of God. Then your position to step into your family, that's the home. And you've got to be disciplined with that as well. And you ladies make a greater mark on your home than you know. Um, you, my daughter one time said to me, she said, Dad, you know what? I, f- I figured out that I only see you X hours a week. And in my immediate, and she had actually sat down and calculated. I think she was like in sixth grade. And my immediate response was, that's not true. And she goes, no. And she walked through every day. The, the 45 minutes to an hour I had with him before school and the two and a half hours I had with him after I got home at dinner. And then I realized, oh my goodness, how little time I actually had with them. 
And then I praise God for my wife who was with them so much more. And for many of you, that's the case. Uh, you are spending the bulk of time in your home and you're helping to shape it. Um, you need to be somebody who when you breathe and when you emit whatever comes from you, it must be God's word. It must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to shepherd your heart so that you can then step into your home and care for your home and put out a gospel aroma in your home. And that is a discipline. You will not find yourself just doing that. That is an uphill battle. That is swimming upstream. That is trying to roller skate uphill. You stop and you go backwards. You never plateau. You're either aggressively pursuing or you, or you slip and lose ground. And then finally, that kind of woman is the woman in Titus 2 who must step into the lives of other women in the church and care for them and say, this is my fight. This is what my fight looks like. This is what my discipline looks like. This is where I'm gaining ground and this is what happens when I lose ground. Um, Now you're ready to step into the life of the church in that sense. So there's priority. Uh, There is a sequence, but there's a priority. Heart, home, ministry. And what you have to be careful of, and I've heard this in the church, and I, I don't think this is right thinking, and we have to do a better job of communicating this. Um, there, are, there are women and there are men who will evacuate themselves out of ministry to people in the church because they say, heart and home. I need to get my heart and my home together. Yeah, you do. But you're going to see today in the body, you are in the body of Christ. There are moments and there are little seasons in your life where things will be so maybe unsettled in your heart and maybe in your home that you'll feel like, you know, small group's really tough right now. And I get that. I understand that. But that should be for a very short season. And then you get yourself plugged right back into ministry. You get yourself plugged right back into the lives of other people because we need you. Other women need you. And you need them to help you. The way to strengthen some of that is not to evacuate from ministry, but to stay in it and persevere and let those women step into your life and say, I'll help you. I'll I'll pray for you. Here's what you should consider trying at home. Okay? So nobody uses discipline one and discipline two as an evacuation for discipline three. You got it? All right? Very good. Now, here we go. The vision and purpose of Grace Bible Church. Today we're talking about how does Wellspring even fit in to all of this. <clears throat> there was a, a guy who ran the Chrysler Corporation a long time ago. Um, it, it was a mess of a company and he brought it out of the depths of despair. And he had this great statement. He says that if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And that is the case. If you aim at nothing in life, you can't expect to hit the target of life, the goal of life. If you aim at the wrong target, you certainly are not going to aim at and and ever arrive at the right goal in life. So your only hope in hitting the right target in life is to know what it is. And then with all of your might and with all of God's strength and his, his spirit strength within you, to strive at hitting that right goal. And so as a church family, we don't want to aim at nothing. And we certainly don't want to be aiming at the wrong target for our church family. So we tried to make sure that we're focusing on the right target to direct our energies toward as a church family. So we have to strive not by our own strength, um, because if we do that, we will certainly fail. But we need to rely on God's word to guide us. We have to rely on his spirit's strength within us. Um, and we have to abandon the wisdom of the world. We have to abandon the wisdom of the godless culture we live in. Uh, the elders are not interested in business uh, trends that work for a corporation but can't even begin to address the life and the unity of a local church family. We're a spiritual entity. We're not just a corporation. And we have to abandon the trendy trends of evangelical culture today. I mean, one thing comes and the next thing goes and it happens over and over and over. And all they do is every 10, 20 years is recycle the old safe thing and put a new flashy celebrity face on it. And it's just got a new life again. Um, You're going to see this. The longer you live in Christ, the trends come and they go and the trends come and they go. And this time it's got a different guy's face on it. And then next time it's got a different another guy's face on it. We're not looking at those things. The vision and the purpose statement for a Grace Bible Church functions as a tool, and that's all that it is, um, that we use to help us to aim at the right target or the right goal for our church. And the only thing we need in this endeavor is this book right here. To aim at the right target, all we need is this book. The Bible alone tells us what the target is for the church 
it alone directs us step by step toward the goal for the church. And so then what is this statement you see at the top of your um, page there and that you see on the bulletin every Sunday? What is that then? Well, it's one way, one way. There are many ways. But this is one way for us to distill and summarize what the Bible says in its entirety. Now, anytime you try to summarize what the Bible says, are you going to leave important things out? Yes. There are some important things that aren't even mentioned here. Um, But that doesn't keep you from doing it. When somebody asks you about your testimony, you don't tell them everything. You tell them what you can tell them. So we understand that we do that. But, but this tries to grab the main lines and strands and themes of the Bible and the gospel and the mission for the church. So let me read it for you there. You see there's this main big statement in the middle. A biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. And then each of those parts has a, a triad to it, right? The glory of God, the cross of Christ, life transformation by the Spirit, and then drawing in, building up, and sending out. We begin broadly. It's a biblical vision. It's as big as the Bible. The the vision that we use, uh, that we aim for and look at, is as wide as your Bible is wide. And then it narrows down to something within your Bible, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, This book is the the Bible. Uh, The gospel is often said to be the crown jewel of the Bible. Um, This is not the gospel. This is the Bible. And the gospel is within it. It's revealed within it. And so we start wide by focusing our sights on the Bible. And then we eventually narrow down our activity into the gospel purpose of Jesus Christ. And they're both in triad form. So the vision part focuses on a person. Did you notice that? The God of glory, the Christ of the cross, and the spirit of transformation. So our sights begin first just on a person. And then the purpose focuses on a task or an activity, drawing in, building up, sending out. And I love this about our target that we're aiming for. First and most, we focus on a person, and not just any person. The person, capital P person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And then we get to work. Then we go after a task, an activity. His son's task for us. So maybe said another way, first, we worship. First, we fear this God. First, we love this God. And then we get to work for his son's sake in this world. So let's take each of these big strands together. Let's start first with a biblical vision of God. What do we mean by vision? Um, In the phrase, a biblical vision of God, we intend to use um, a word from the sight family of words, right? We're talking about vision. By vision, we mean that we want to see the God of the Bible with the eyes of our hearts and minds. And that side of him we want, it comes only one way, through the words on the page. It doesn't come through dreams or anything like that. It only comes through the Bible. That's where we see him. The sight of him there. It is a biblical vision in that sense. We do not see God or have visions of him from any other source. We see God by these scriptures. We see him in these scriptures only. And then what do these scriptures set our eyes on? Well, one way to summarize the grand revelation of God in this book is in this triad. The God of glory, the Christ of the cross, and the spirit of transformation. So let's talk about the glory of God first. The word glory in your Bible uh, means um, weightiness, heavy. The Old Testament word for it is, is just heavy. But heavy in the sense of impressive, beyond measure, um, overwhelming. And when it's used in reference to God and God's glory, it means that God has weightiness. He has worth beyond measure. He has a splendor and a a majesty, uh, an impressiveness, an overwhelmingness about him. And in regards to God in Scripture, God appears to communicate that glory, uh, manifest that weightiness of himself in connection with radiant, brilliant light. 
radiant, brilliant light. It's really interesting. There, there is a sense in which God's glory is that which he uses in the Bible in special moments to reveal himself to man, to the prophet, whoever he's meeting with. So that that man can take him in, can take God in and survive. God uses his glory, his weightiness in brilliant light as a tool to communicate himself to man in scripture. You can write down John 1.18. John says there, no one has seen God at any time. Let's go back to Exodus 33. You're going to be back here a little bit with me. So go back to Exodus 33, verse 20. This is that chapter where uh, Israel is in big, big trouble with God. Um, They have done the whole golden calf thing. And now Moses is back up on the mountain with God. And God is saying, I am not going anywhere with you. I'll give you my angel and he'll go with you. And Moses is pleading with him. It has to be you, God. You, Yahweh, you must go with us. And you remember the whole story. But look at Exodus 33, verse 20. But he said, Yahweh said to Moses, you cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. If anybody tells you that he was looking in the mirror and he was shaving and he talked with Jesus or talked with God, he's a liar. He saw something maybe, um, but it wasn't God because no man can see him and live. But at unique times, God communicated or he revealed something of himself to men in a weighty and impressive, radiant, brilliant form that man was capable of soaking in and surviving. And Moses was dropped to his knees. Take your shoes off. You were on holy ground. This weightiness of God, this glory of God. And Moses came down the mountain and he didn't even know it. But what was true about him when people looked at him? His face was glowing. The radiant brilliance of God had even transferred to him. So let's look and see for a moment here how your Bible ties together this whole uh, glory of God. Look at chapter 33, verse 18. Moses is there on the mountain and he just says, show me your glory. I want to see that weighty, impressive, radiant, brilliant glory that is that you're using to communicate yourself, right? So Moses is on a mountain in the Old Testament before the glory of God. Now I want you to turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and following. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. This is the Mount of Transfiguration, the mountain in which Jesus, on which Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, before Peter, John, and James. Luke 9, 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and he went up on the mountain to pray. So now we're back on a mountain scene. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. So Jesus' face becomes altered. And his clothing became white and gleaming, radiant, brilliant light emanating from him. And behold, so, okay, back up. Mountain, now radiant light. Sound familiar? Next verse. Verse 30, behold, two men were talking with Jesus. They were Moses and Elijah. So now you're on another mountain. You've got radiant, brilliant light, and Moses is there. And you also have Elijah. In one sense, you've got the law and the prophets. You have the Old Testament revelation summed up in these two men on a mountain. Again, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the story you know, goes on about how Peter does not get what is going on. He thinks Jesus is on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He thinks he's on the same level as these Old Testament prophets who represent the scriptures. And God says, no, he is above that. He is the God of the scriptures. He's me. He's my son. Glory of God tied from the beginning to the end. Here's another one I'll let you see. Uh, You can write down Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. Isaiah there is overwhelmed by the massive majestic presence of God in the temple, right? And then turn over to John chapter 12. So that's Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. Now turn over to John chapter 12, verse 37. What does John tell us? John 12, verse 37. That though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fill the word, fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who's believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
chapter 12, verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he's blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and be converted. And I healed them. Verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. He's talking about Messiah. Who did Isaiah see in the temple? The glory of Messiah, pre-incarnate. So your Old Testament, from the Older Testament into your Newer Testament, the glory of God is the central theme of the Bible, and we want to set our eyes on that God in all of his weightiness and impressiveness. And you say, so what? What difference does this make? Um, There's a lot of talk about we need to glorify God with our lives. We want to please him. We want to magnify him with the way that we live. And we should not take away any emphasis on that at all. But we should put something before that, which will only help us. So before you rush out into your day to try to glorify God in your parenting and try to glorify God with your, your, your marriage and try to glorify God in whatever ministry that God has called you to, don't rush to glorify God by skipping what is glorious about him in the scriptures, right? Position yourself daily before this book, before these words, to drink in just God in all of his weightiness. What difference would that make when your little ones come out? When you have to care for the big little one in your life, your husband. What is impressive about God in the pages that you're reading? It doesn't matter where you are. Are you reading the, a bunch of names you don't understand in Chronicles? First Chronicles, that, that's okay. God, show me what is impressive about you. God, show me what is um, weighty about you. God, help me to linger here a little longer in worship in regards to you. Help me to say back to you these very words that I see David saying in the Psalms or that I see Daniel saying or that I see... Um, The disciples in in, in Acts saying, wherever you are, linger there a little bit longer. That is how you will best glorify God with your life is when you are drinking in the glory of God first. So our cry every day needs to be something similar to Moses when he was on the mountain. You open your Bible, you rub the sleep out of your eye, you take a sip of your coffee and you say, God, show me your glory. Show me your weightiness. He was desperate to see the impressiveness of God and that positioned him to glory, glorify God once he came down the mountain and was among the people of Israel. So open your Bible each day with a cry of desperation and plead with God to show you his glory in the words on his page. You can do that if you read 10 chapters. You can read that, do that if you read 10 words. Whatever it is, anything between there, that's your prayer. Show me your glory. Secondly, what did the scripture set our eyes on? Um, Actually, the most shocking event ever recorded in the pages of scripture, that is the crucifixion of the Son of God, the cross of Christ. How is Christ's death at the cross related to God's glory? Do they have any relationship with each other? They absolutely do. This is astounding. You can go back to Exodus chapter 24. I'll show you this from left to right in your Bible again. Exodus 24 verse 15, you can turn there. Um, The weightiness of God, the impressiveness of God, the radiant brilliance of God in Scripture is inseparably tied to the blood that is sacrificially shed in a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God in all of his glory was enveloping a mountain after the exodus from Egypt. Look at Exodus 24, verse 15. Then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. I imagine, I think, like him going up to Camelback Mountain. And then all of a sudden, a cloud just covers, just drinks up the mountain. And the impressiveness of God, the weightiness of God, even the brilliant light of of God rested on Mount Sinai, just coming down and just sitting on the mountain. Covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called out to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel down in Arcadia, as they're looking up at the Camelback Mountain, the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a consuming fire. They're like, that mountain's gone. Certainly it's not going to be left when he's done. His fire is just consuming the mountain. And Moses entered into the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 
He was living on the word of God alone. He didn't need even bread. The mountain was quaking and it was giving way under the weightiness and the overwhelmingness of God. And then while he's up there, Mosaic law is given to Moses. God revealed there through that law that he wanted his glorious presence. That, that glorious presence that's enveloping a mountain, God through law said, make a tent for me. Make a tent for me. You guys all live in tents. I'm going to be in a tent in the midst of your tents. That's ridiculous. Nope. Nobody would have ever thought about that. That was from God. He wanted to dwell in the midst of the tents of Israel in his own tent. And his prescription in that tent was, before I even get into it, I want blood everywhere to set it apart. And then I'll put my glory in it where the blood was. And then I will require of you every day blood. The blood of a substitute. The blood of an innocent, innocent substitute. An animal. So God fused his glory and the blood of a substitute together from the very earliest pages of scripture. Go to Exodus 40, verse 34. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about Exodus and Leviticus together. You think of them as two different books and they are. But I want you to see this. Exodus 30, uh, chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not even able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temp- tabernacle. There was such an intensity about it that he couldn't even go in. And whenever the cloud lifted, they went. And whenever the light by night moved on, they moved. And when it sat down, they didn't go anywhere. And then notice how Leviticus chapter 1 starts. Then, it's like there's not even a chapter break, not even a book. It's just like, here's the next word. Here's what happened next. Then, Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of the meeting. So the glorious presence of Yahweh is in there. And he says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him. Here it is to make atonement on his behalf. Exodus ends with the radiant glory of God filling the tent. Leviticus begins with the blood of an innocent substitute in the tent. Sound familiar? The fusion of God's glory and a substitute's blood reached its revelational climax where? In the cross of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate substitute, where he shed his blood for the glory of God. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. The writer of Hebrews helps us understand this Old Testament idea and transfers it into the New Testament, shows us progressively what God is doing. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. We saw that. We talked about that. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tent and all of the vessels of the ministry with the blood. That was to set apart the tent so that the glory of God could come in. And according to law, one may... um, Almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. And that's all that the tent was. It was a copy. It was a God gave to him a pattern. He said, follow this pattern and the tent will represent something of the reality of heaven. But the heavenly things, verse 23, um, they themselves are cleansed with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with the hands of men, which is just a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And then here was the tent practice or the temple practice once they had a temple. Verse 25, nor was it that Jesus would um, offer himself often over and over. As the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have had needed to suffer often often since the foundation of the world. But here's what Jesus did. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin. How? 
by the sacrifice of himself. This is the, the, where your Older Testament and your Newer Testament, I mean, there, there is just only continuity between the God of the Old Testament, the God of glory, and the blood of a substitute. Everything that was going on in the tent in the Old Testament was merely to look forward to a better thing that was coming, a better one who was coming, a better blood who, that was shed. So what does this mean? You know what this means as you're reading your Bible and you're understanding this more and more? It means that you can't talk about the glory of God without eventually getting to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And you shouldn't talk about the shed blood of Jesus Christ without also wanting to make a big deal about God and his impressiveness. You can't talk about the glory of God without getting the forgiveness of sin through the shedding of Christ's blood. You can't talk about the glory of God without getting to the, the putting away of sin from the Father's sight through the substitutionary death of Jesus. You can't talk about the glory of God without talking about wrath satisfied through shed blood. Here's your key term, right? This key phrase, penal, substitutionary, atonement, right? I say this every year. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Penal sounds like penalty because there is a penalty a penalty must be paid for our offense against god our rebellion against god our sin against god but that penalty can only be paid by a substitute the substitute who is jesus an innocent substitute and all of that that penalty was paid by an innocent substitute in order to atone for our sins his shed blood at the cross takes away our guilt um satisfies God's wrath. His shed blood at the cross reconciles us to God. It forgives us. And we want to set our sights on the cross of Jesus Christ. So the God of glory and the Christ of the cross cannot be pulled apart. So what? What difference does that make? Every day, again, just like before we talked about with the glory of God, you should position yourselves every day to drink in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you can read Leviticus and get that. So don't ignore Leviticus, and don't ignore Numbers, and don't ignore Deuteronomy, and don't stay with your five favorite books of the New Testament. Um, come back and look for it. You understand this. You get what God's doing. Think progressively. Think he's, he's uh, revealing progressive revelation to us. You have to move from left to right, but drink in the substitutionary death of Jesus. You want to be like the Apostle Paul. Go over to Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Here, here's your goal every day. This is Paul's goal. Galatians 6, verse 14. May it never be that I would boast. I've got nothing to brag about. Yeah, well, wait a minute. Except in one thing. What? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Not only have we been crucified with Christ, which is really good, but Paul even says the world was nailed to the cross. I mean, the, the double dead relationship to the world in sin. Neither a circumcision anything or uncircumcision, verse 15, but what matters is a new creation being made new. If you want to be able to be like Paul and be able to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, you're going to need to every day drink it in where you see it in scripture. That's how you prepare your heart to boast in him. That's how you'll be ready to boast in him at any point during the day. When your little one climbs up onto your lap and asks you questions, when your husband needs encouragement, when he comes home, it is your primary counsel to yourself and others. Listen, the cross is your answer when you sin. And the cross is your answer when you do well. Um, and the cross is your answer you give to your child when your child is just crushed under the weight and the guilt of their own sin. The cross is the answer to everything. How did you do anything? How did that even go right? How did you even do that? Well, it's only because of the cross. You never get to take the credit. You never get to boast. I never get to boast. So what we want a biblical, um, we want a biblical vision guiding us as a church. That means our Bible's open. We want to set our sights on the glory of God, the cross of Jesus, and then the transformation of life by the Spirit. Do you know what the Bible says and lays out as the Holy Spirit's primary work? I'm not asking you what you think, what you've heard other Christians say the primary work of the Spirit is. But do you know what the Bible says is the primary work of the Holy Spirit? The primary work of the Holy Spirit is this, to bring about the new birth 
that then ushers us into a transformed life. That is the primary work of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? Do you love that about him? The primary work of the Holy Spirit is to bring about the new birth that then ushers us into a life in which we are capable of pleasing God. His primary work is to make the dead alive in Christ. You know, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, Jesus is with um, Nicodemus. And whatever Nicodemus thinks he's going to say, we know that you are taught by God and you're a teacher. And he just interrupts and says, you've got to be born again. By the Spirit, right? Uh, the Spirit is the one who causes you to be born again. Let's go to, um, did you write that down? John 3, 1 to 8. Uh, write down 2 Timothy chapter, I'm sorry, not 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Titus 3, 5 to 7. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but he saved us according to his mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he, I love the, there's, there's the triune God here, whom he, God the Father, poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. God the Father pours the Spirit out through His Son on us, and He's not stingy with His Spirit. He poured Him out upon us richly. Jesus was pleased to be the conduit through which the Spirit would come. I will send you my helper. How does He do this? How does He cause us to be born again? Well, the Spirit applies the work of Christ at the cross to the one that the Spirit is saving, that He's causing to be born again. He makes what happened 2,000 years ago and a reality in time in 1985 for a 19-year-old punk in western Nebraska. And he did it for you the same way. A reality long ago, the Spirit enters into your life, causes you to be born again, and everything, everything, everything changes. Everything. He applies propitiation to your life, which is the satisfaction of God's wrath. He applies expiation to your life, which is the removal of guilt from the sight of God. He applies reconciliation to your life. He reconciles God to you, you to God. He adopts us into God. Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. He adopts us. Romans 8, 14 to 17. The Holy Spirit seals the believer. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Write these all down. Spend time on them. Um, and that means the Holy Spirit is the one who is powerfully preserving you for heaven so that you get the inheritance that he is the pledge for. He's the guarantee. He's the down payment for what you're going to get. But in the meantime, while we live here in this new life, this new creation that he has brought to us, the Holy Spirit does something else too that's really important. He powerfully enables us to fight against indwelling sin, against residual sin in our lives. He is the primary power for our sanctification, our progressive sanctification. And all of this indescribable work uh, of the Holy Spirit, it brings about then an amazing transformation of life to us. His new birth that he accomplishes for us, it ushers us into a new life which is marked by us actually progressively at one stage by the next stage by the next stage overcoming sin in our lives bit by bit go to second corinthians chapter 3 i want you to see this second corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 second corinthians 3:18 this is what paul said but we all with an unveiled face looking back to that whole moses thing right moses veiled his face he didn't like the idea that people could see their radiant the radiance of God leaving his face over time. But we all aren't like him. We just, we don't need a veil. We're beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. He was looking at the glory of the Lord. We are looking at the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed into the same image from one level of glory to the next level of impressiveness. Not our impressiveness, but the impressiveness that he has. Just as from the Lord, and who is the Lord in this case? The Spirit. So the Spirit is transforming us. And do you see how the glory of God is not just tied to the cross, but the glory of God is tied to our transformation of life by the Spirit too? How about Romans 8, verses 10 to 13? Turn back to Romans 8. I want you to see this. This is very important. Romans 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you, 
Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. If that's the case, if that's what's happened, we are under obligation. You are not your own captain. You are not the one who gets to add Jesus to your life and say, here's what I want you to do for me. You are not. You are under obligation. Jesus is not under obligation to do what you want. You are under his uh, under obligation to him. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But in contrast to that, if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You know what he's describing there? He's describing the unbeliever and then the believer. There are some who live according to the standard of the flesh. Who is that? Those are unbelievers. That's all they can do. They only have one standard. It is their flesh. And if you live that way, you die. You die. But in contrast to that, here's the believer. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is not that the unbeliever sins and you don't. The difference is the unbeliever lives according to the standard of the flesh and will die and perish in your sin, but you fight your sin by the Spirit. That is what God determines He wants right now, and that is the role of the Spirit of God in your life right now. I want to be in heaven. I don't want to struggle with this anymore. And so do you. I'm sure you feel the same way. But what glorifies God right now is that He would take a clay vessel and put a treasure in it. What a mixed condition that is. And it brings him glory to do that now. And so the spirit of God in your life is the, is the power for transformation of life. The only power. And what difference does that make every day? Well, you, you open your Bible and you say, I, I need the spirit of God. God, I need you. I need your spirit to dwell. I need to yield my life to his power. And by that, we don't mean something mystical and weird and unforeseen. What we mean is, help me to hope, obey. Help me to grow more today by saying no to my sin, to put to death the deeds of this body. That's what I need your spirit for. I need you, God. I need you, spirit. So this is one way to summarize what the Bible is all about. We're setting our sights on a person, a triune person, the God of glory, the Christ of the cross, and the spirit of transformation. And we find that when we set our sights on the Bible and the God of the Bible as what I would say called paused worshipers, right? I mean, you should get distracted going into your day. Uh, I couldn't get to what was next because I was so paused here in worship of him. That then leads you to be very active. Leads you to be very active. Listen, as we pause ourselves to worshipfully gaze on the God in the Bible, our God in the Bible, we don't become hermits or monks who want to withdraw from the world and just meditate. We don't. We become very active people for the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So we're ready now for the second half of our vision and purpose statement. Number two, our gospel purpose in Christ. What do we mean by gospel purpose? We're referring to Jesus' gospel mission. You'll, you'll notice this as you read your Bible, that, that God has different purposes for a lot of his servants at different points in his whole redemptive plan. Let me give you an example. Noah had a purpose. What was Noah's purpose? Build an ark. You got 120 years to do it. Build an ark. And so he did. For a terrifying day of judgment that was coming on earth. Is that your purpose? No, I don't see anybody building an ark, gathering wood, and trying to figure out how to do that. Moses had a purpose. Moses' purpose was to go into Egypt and to help captive Israel escape their slavery to be under the care of Yahweh out in the wilderness and eventually in the promised land. Is that your purpose? Anybody going into one nation to take out another nation? That's not your purpose. David had a purpose. David's purpose was to be a godly king over the nation of Israel from his throne in Jerusalem to carry out God's justice from there among the nations and to punish evildoers from his throne. Anybody doing that this week? That's not our purpose, is it? We get that. 
So which purpose in the Bible do you live under as a follower of Christ? You don't live under Noah's, you don't live under Moses, you don't live under David's, but you live under Jesus' purpose in his gospel mission. And don't miss this, I'll say this again. Being a Christian is not about God yielding himself to your purposes and giving you a more fulfilled life in whatever it is you think you need to go be and do. He does not yield himself to your purpose. I tell you what, a Christianity that out there, an evangelicalism out there that puts that forward, that you know God will come alongside you, he just wants to help you have a fulfilled life. I tell you what, the minute life turns upside down for that person, they're going to be screaming at God, where were you, servant? But that's not God. Noah had to die to whatever his purpose in life was when God came to him. Moses had to die to whatever he was doing with sheep out in the wilderness. David had to give up his shepherd boy purposes in life when God came to him. And you have to give up whatever purposes you have in life in coming to Jesus Christ. And you live under his purpose. It is a gospel purpose. It is the mission of Jesus Christ in this world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ until the end of the age. Right? And it appears that when Jesus was in the Gospels, uh, as he's revealed in the Gospels, that he had three primary overlapping complementary activities for his disciples to participate in, drawing in, building up, and sending out. Busily engaged in all of those at the same time. These overlap, there's, there's priority, but there's not this rigid sequence. You never graduate from drawing in and then start building up. And you can't do any sending out until you've been drawn in and built up and got your degrees from those two schools, and then you can go be sent out. Turn to John chapter 6, verse 44. John 6, verse 44. Jesus had something to say about what it means to be drawn in. John 6, 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And he's not talking just about, uh, he physically needs to be drawn into my presence, because he's talking about raising him up on the last day. It is some kind of a drawing in that is so significant that it is eternal, and when he comes back and on his day, he'll raise that one up who's drawn to him. That, that's salvation. Right? How about verse 65 of the same chapter? And he was saying, for this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Uh, Luke says the same thing in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, when Paul was on his first missionary journey and he was in Pisidian Antioch. Acts 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, that Paul was going to turn away from the Jews in the synagogue and turn to the Gentiles with the gospel... When the Gentiles heard that, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? The ones who had been appointed to eternal life. God does this drawing in work. God does this drawing in work. In other words, what the New Testament makes immensely clear is that in the gospel mission of Jesus Christ, do we do something? Yeah, we preach the gospel. We call sinners to repentance and faith in the gospel, but sinners are drawn into a saving relationship with Christ, ultimately because of God. God. And that's what we labor for. Is that not what you want to see happen? Is that not what your parenting just gets swallowed up in? Your parenting is a subset of you want to see God draw in your children to his saving work in his son. Everything gets swallowed up in this. Drawing in is ultimately salvation drawing in that God does. And we get the amazing privilege to open our mouths and say, Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. It's amazing. It's also very important to note carefully that Jesus Christ is God's powerful object of attraction. Uh, Go back to John chapter 12, verse 32. And I'm going to give you other verses to look at. Jesus said, John 12, verse 32, And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. A lifting up on the cross and breathing his last to draw all of his men and women and boys and girls to himself. You write down 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him what? 
crucified. There's the drawing lodestone, so to speak, the magnet. You can lift up a lot of other things before sinners and they might get attracted to something, whatever it is you lift up, but if it's not Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sin, you don't know what God's doing in that. We're not interested in drawing in attenders merely for attendance sake. If we think uh, filling our chairs uh, is really cool, we haven't pushed ourselves far enough to ask the question, are they saved? We're not satisfied till that kind of drawing in takes place. When are you most satisfied? Are, are you most satisfied just because your, your child likes you? But they're lost. That doesn't satisfy you, does it? I mean, you go to bed at night and you're, you can't get to sleep because... You, you need to talk to the Lord some more about where your, your son or your daughter's at. When are you satisfied? That whatever your friendship is or relationship with your child is, that, that it actually was a platform that God was somehow pleased to use to save them. Now you're satisfied. That's what life's about. That's what parenting's about, right? What difference does this make every day? Listen, um, as you share the gospel with your children, your, your neighbors, your coworkers, classmates, wherever God has you, remember they are all dead in their sins. Okay? You don't have a spiritual band-aid for them. You have the gospel for them. They need a power beyond your friendship. They need a power beyond your wisdom. They need a power beyond your logic to try to help them figure out their lives. They need something beyond you. They need someone beyond you. They need the the power of God for salvation, which is what? The gospel. When God saved you, there was a person involved, most likely. I, I, I know one guy... I probably know more than one guy, but I, I know one guy for sure that he got out to, um, to run one morning. He was an unbeliever, and um, he lived up he, he lived up in Mummy Mountain over in uh, Paradise Valley. And his the only way to get to his house once you got to his driveway it was a dead end. I mean, you, nobody was passing by his house to go someplace else. And he got out to run, and he noticed something on the ground, and it was, there was a track, a gospel track. He, he had no idea how it got there, um, but he. He opened it up, and without anybody else in his life, he read it. He's like, oh, my goodness, I need to repent. And God saved him. Um, for most of us, there was somebody else involved in our lives when, when, when that happened. And, and you, know, you know what saved you was not that friendship, right? Um, I went to a, a Christian concert, and I heard the gospel. I had never even heard the gospel before. It wasn't a concert. It wasn't a religious gathering that saved me. It wasn't a church attendance that saved you. It wasn't your religious um, activity in a campus ministry that saved you. It was the gospel. It was God, right? Who drew you in with his power. You need to remember that. It's not going to be your friendship that saves anybody. It's not going to be you inviting them to church that saves them. Invite them to church. Be their friend. Give all of those things their proper weight. Just don't overweight them. Okay? Pray. Write down Romans 10.1, write down Romans 9.1-3, and look at Paul's broken heart. I, I would, God, I'll be accursed if it means that they get to be saved. Can you say that? God, I would, I, I'd go to hell if you'd save my, my daughter, my son, my husband, my dad. That's, that's seeing things in a way that I don't yet see them, unfortunately. So Jesus had three primary overlapping gospel activities to do. Drawing in is the first one. Building up is the second one. Okay? The second one. Let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Most of us think about being built up and we think about it in an individual way, an individualistic way. And that's not wrong. We think about ourselves personally and we forget about the corporate building up. Because um, we've been taught over years, and just in evangelicalism, the emphasis is on building up an individual Christian. And we should never become unconcerned with that. But we should read our Bibles carefully and see what Jesus wants to do with the body of Christ. And if he wants something a little bigger than that, then we should want something a little bigger than that. Let's look at it. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Let me get on the right page. 
And he, Jesus, gave some as apostles, he gave some as prophets, and he gave some as evangelists, and he gave some as pastors and teachers. Why did he give these foundational kinds of gifts? Well, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the what? The body. Is that on your mind? Does that occupy any of your prayers? God, build up Grace Bible Church. Build up that body represented in that local church. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, you kind of just get swallowed up in that big picture there, don't you? That's what, that's what Jesus is after in this world, is that the body of Christ, that local bodies of Christ would be seen to be mature, like a, like a mature man, not a child. He talks about children. Look at it. As a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And then here's the great statement. The whole body causes the growth of the body. That's the main clause in all of verse 16. The whole body causes the growth of the body. That's counterintuitive. But that's the way Jesus made the body of Christ. The body will actually cause the body to grow. Now, he causes it to grow. He is the one who is the source. This is all from him, verse 16, from whom the whole body. Now, where do you fit in? Where does your little individual life fit in? Well, let's look at it, verse 16. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every connection supplies or every joint supplies. So there's joints of supply. There's, there's one part comes up against another part and there's a supply. He says when one part comes up against the other, there's a supply of power there when their pieces are together. Now watch what it says. And that it has to operate according to the proper working of each what? Individual part. There you are. There I am. So what is your focus? Your focus is on I'm an individual part. That's all I can do. I can't make the hand grow when I'm the knee. Okay, but I I need to make sure that I am growing. I'm an individual part so that when I then put my life in the body as an individual part and it comes up against somebody else's individual part, there's a supply of connection of power there. And when that happens all through the body, the body causes the growth of the body. That's what God wants to do with your life is put it in with other lives and supply a a connection of power between your life and another life and then growth takes place in the body. This is all from him. And this is for the building up of itself in love, verse 16. That's amazing. What difference does that make every day in your life? Well, how much do you focus on how much do you focus on your individual growth? Do you ever do that to the exclusion or to the neglect of the building up of the body? Listen, don't stop thinking about and strategizing how you need to grow personally. You need to keep doing that. But what might you need to add more of to? I got to put my life in the body of Christ. And you just need to every once in a while take inventory of your life. Um, It seems like we haven't been at church a lot. It seems like we haven't been able to get to small group very much. It seems like we haven't been able to whatever. Um, Well... Maybe you're in a, in, a, in a unique situation. Maybe God has you in a place where maybe you need to get the body to your house to help you. But you need to be taking inventory of your life to make sure that you can put your life together with other people in the body so that the body can grow. So the answer here is not to focus less on your personal proper working as an individual part, but rather the focus is to expand your view of what building up work God wants to do. All right, so we are concerned to be about drawing in, we're concerned about building up, and lastly, sending out. Let me give you a kind of running start through the Bible, just as you think about this. You can write these down if you want. God himself always has been ascending God. He sent Moses, Exodus 3. He sent out Isaiah, after he saw Isaiah, after Isaiah saw his glory. Remember he said, it's a great little, I love this passage in Isaiah 6. Um, he's sitting there, he's seen the glory of God. He's like, oh my goodness, I'm unclean, lips cleansed by the, you know, 
the angel, and he gets to then overhear God in his triune being talking. Whom shall we send? And he just is like, oh, send me, send me. Right? So Isaiah gets sent. Jeremiah gets sent. Ezekiel gets sent. John the Baptist was sent. And Jesus Christ was sent by his sending father. Then the sending son sends the spirit. Do you get that? I mean, we could spend a whole just message on this. Jesus dozens of times in, in the Gospel of John refers to himself as sent by the Father. He whom the Father sent. The Spirit is sent. John 14, 26. John 15, 26. John 16, 7. I will send the Spirit. The Father will send the Spirit. He sent out 12 disciples. I mean, when ascending Father who sent his Son, who then sent the Spirit, saves you, what do you think you're going to do? Be the only one who's not sent? You're sent too. Where are you sent? Well, sometimes he sends you to Papua New Guinea. Sometimes he sends you to uh, your house and take care of your kids. Sometimes he does both, right? Wherever you find yourself, wherever God has you, that's where he sent you. And you know, there's a genius in that because there is, there's no way we as elders could think, how could we strategize an evangelistic opportunity for the women of the church where we could put them in touch with the same faces six days out of the week? Let's, here's a program. We'll do that. We'll, no, we can't do it. We just can't. The best program that, God, that has been put together is the one that God already has given to you. Think about your, your, your kid's schooling situation. Think about your neighborhood. Think about the store you go to. Think about... Um, work, the, the cubicle, the classroom, wherever it is, that, that's a tr- pretty tremendous evangelistic program that God has sent you into. Think of the little ones that you need to evangelize every day. Uh, that's not insignificant. It's very significant. So you need to just maybe adjust your own view of yourself. I am a sent one. I am a sent one, ascending father who sent his son, who sent his spirit, saved me, and I don't get to sit on the shelf. I don't get to bench myself. I don't sit on the sidelines. I'm sent too. Now, we're all sent in different ways. Some of us are better at it. Some, God will give some of us a, a really wide scope of influence. And, and others of us might have a more narrow one. That's okay. Let God determine that for you. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't compare yourself to what others do. Just rest in what God does with you. All right? And the gospel is central to each one of these things. What, what, nobody gets drawn in without the gospel. How, what happens building up-wise if, if the gospel is not involved? R- Romans 16.25, Paul says, now according to my gospel that establishes you. The gospel always is establishing you, helping you to become more built up in Christ. And why would you even go sent out if you didn't have the gospel? gospel central so the glory of god in the face of christ who is crucified um, for the spirit who brings about transformation of life we set our sights on that god and then we um, go rushing out into the world under jesus gospel purpose Um, on your last page i'm going to let you read most of this on your own um we've been doing build for over, over 12 years now at this church, which is the men's version of this. Um, we added Wellspring to it not long ago. How many years have we been doing this now? Do you know, Chris? Nine? Wow. We did it a long time ago. Um, how do these fit together in under the, this is question two. You don't have to read it um, right now. These are ministries of Grace Bible Church that are primarily building up ministries. That's what God calls the church to do, is to build up the church. The church is also light in a community. And as you scatter, every Tuesday morning, in our not every Tuesday morning, but almost every Tuesday morning when we meet us in, in the staff, um, Allie and um, Rachel and, and then Josh and Sved and me and John and Amr. We said one of our things that we pray for is that uh, that's on my mind is right now I'm sitting in a church office and there are like six people in this building from the church. And there are 
400, 360 adults, 260, 18 and under, scattered everywhere across this valley. That's amazing. There's a great influence, but this ministry primarily is a part of Grace Bible Church for you to be built up. And in building you up in your relationship with Christ through the disciplines, you are then going to be better positioned as you are sent out wherever God has you. And God will be pleased to draw in through you. So it's primarily a building up ministry that does not just exclusively think, you know, us four no more, shut the door, we're built up. But no, I'm being built up so that wherever God takes me, I'm effective for him in drawing in. Um, They're going to ask you to read through the Bible. They're going to ask you to uh, maybe come up with your own Bible reading plan. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about our heart in that. Um, if you read the same five books over and over for like a decade, you're, you're impoverished. I'm, I'm just going to say it that way. You're impoverished. Do you know why? Because God revealed himself on so many other pages in the Bible. And so if, this is a, if, if you have never read through the Bible, would you prayerfully just consider that I'll put myself on a through the, year, uh, through the Bible in a year plan? I don't care if you put yourself on a through the Bible in a three-year plan. It doesn't matter. But you need to see the God who revealed himself in the words of your Bible on every single page. Ezekiel mentions the heart, I don't know how many times, 60 sometimes. Um, it, it's amazing. And if you never read Ezekiel, you don't know what God says about the heart there, about your heart. You need to explore him more in the Bible. So um, press yourself. Let this be maybe a year where you push yourself a little bit. And then you can all be like in your little group of encouragement uh, week after week when in about three or four or five, six weeks, you're like, my Bible reading really stunk this week. You're not the only one who will be there. Uh, many of us will, and you can just help each other out. Okay? All right. Chris, anything else you want? Are we done? Yeah. Uh, your little ones are being retrained for, again, you can hear that, can't you? Down the hall. It's great. I love it. Let's pray and we'll let you go get them. Father, I thank you for these ladies. I pray that you will bless them this year, Lord, that you would take this ministry. It's just a tool. Uh, It is not an end. We do not want to draw any attention to this ministry. We don't want to glorify this ministry. We don't want to brag or boast on any ministry in this church. But what we want is any ministry, every ministry, to be a tool that you would be pleased to use in some way, shape, or form to help us to become more like Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would have that effect on these women here, that they would value relationships more than a program, that they would value each other and uh, what you have to offer them in each other more than anything else. And most of all, that they would value your word above all, that they would live their lives um, in submission to you, that they would be eager to find out all the things that you have commanded, and that they would help each other to become better followers of Jesus Christ, Lord. Oh, how we need you for this. But we are weak in our flesh. Any efforts that we put forth in this on our own, apart from you, only fail and they do not glorify you. In fact, it offends you. So help us to be dependent. Help these ladies to be dependent upon you. Help them to come alongside each other and encourage each other uh, throughout the year. Help them to pick one another up and to encourage each other. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.